Hey everyone, this is Faye. Just wanted to let you know that Nick and I are currently conducting a survey for Creogs Over Coffee. We would like to know what our demographics look like, and also we want to know what our listeners are using other than Creogs Over Coffee to learn about OBGYN. So if you're a medical student, resident, fellow, attending, nursing student, whatever type of women's health provider, we would love for you to come and take our survey. You can find our survey link in the information posted below the episode. We'll also have it included on our website. Or if you'd like to go straight from here, the web address is https colon forward slash forward slash redcap dot link slash over coffee. Once again, that's https colon forward slash forward slash redcap.link slash over coffee. Thank you so much for your help and we really appreciate you throughout these two years of us recording. So Nick, now that I'm starting MFM fellowship, I'm realizing that I'm very quickly losing my GYN knowledge. I know, right? We did this episode on vulvar disease and I was like, Oh my God, vulvar disease. I have already lost all of my knowledge of that. Where did you find any information about GYN, Faye? So thankfully, the OBG project has all of their up-to-date information on both OB and GYN information um, that you can access online at any point. Fortunately, I've kept up with that subscription-only OBG first, which allows me to bookmark articles and summaries into my own personal library so I can find those things again that I need for studying for the boards. So if you are a fourth-year resident, you can sign up for one year for OBG first absolutely free, and trust me, it is very, very much worth it. Head on over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and see how you too can get a free year of OBG first as a chief resident. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creox Over Coffee. Coffee. All right, so on today's episode, we're going to start with a little mini series on abortion, termination of pregnancy. Um, and so we'll start with medication abortion in the first trimester. So, Faye, what are our learning objectives today? So today we're going to learn about the epidemiology and barriers to medication abortion in the United States. We are going to discuss eligibility criteria for medication abortion and counseling. And finally, we're going to review medications, clinical screening, and contraception use with and after medication abortions. All right, Nick, so let's start us off. Let's kind of talk about the epidemiology of abortion. So how common is it? So in 2008, about 1.2 million abortion procedures were performed in the United States. Um, more recent numbers suggest that 60% of abortions occur prior to 10 weeks of gestation, with medication abortions comprising almost 40% of all abortions in the United States. Medication abortion is certainly more attractive from a patient perspective potentially than procedural abortions because it can be done safely, effectively, and discreetly. Um, so all obstetrician gynecologists should have a good understanding of medication abortion, even if they aren't providers of medication abortion. Faye, who would you consider eligible for receiving medication abortion if they were to desire it? That's a great question, Nick. So before we get into that, I think, you know, first of all, we need to provide counseling about abortion um, and informed consent regarding all available options and the risks and benefits of each approach. So at an early gestation, 
the two primary options are medication abortion, which we're going to talk about today, and also uterine aspiration. Now, most people who are 70 days gestation or less are eligible for a medical abortion. And patients who may benefit from medical abortion versus a procedure include patients who have fibroids that may distort the uterus in some way, um, uterine anomalies, or scarring of the introitus due to um, things like female genital mutilation. Multiple gestation is not a contraindication to medical abortion, and we can also use the same regimen as singleton gestations. So before we actually prescribe medication for abortion, you should confirm gestational age by a certain LMP within the last 56 days in patients with regular cycles and no symptoms or signs of ectopic pregnancy, or you can use a clinical um, or sonographic exam, but this is not necessarily required before medication abortions. In the United States, most practices do perform an ultrasound just because of the availability um, for confirmation, but again, this is globally not the norm. RH status should also be verified, and Brogam should be administered if indicated for patients who are RH negative. Research here is still continuing, but Rogam is recommended by ACOG for all RH-negative patients, and some situations may call for shared decision-making on this front, and some institutions and professional groups do actually do not recommend Rogam prior to 10 weeks gestation. For the reasons why, you can go back and listen to our episode on alloimmunization, where we talk about the amount of actual fetal red blood cells that um, are present before 12 weeks of gestation. Finally, additional laboratories, counseling, evaluation, etc. may be required by your local government or state laws prior to proceeding with medical abortion. Nick, talk to me a little bit about people who should not get medical abortion. So yeah, there are a certain kind of groups of patients that medical abortion or medication abortion may not be an appropriate choice. Um, certainly, you think about patients who have suspected or confirmed ectopic pregnancy. That's obviously not the appropriate option for them. Definitely. Uh, patients who have an IUD that remains in situ, also not probably a great choice. Though if you pull the IUD first, you can then safely proceed with medication abortion afterwards. Um, and then patients with chronic medical conditions are ones that may be okay for medication abortion, but at least should proceed with probably closer follow-up than you would otherwise use. Some of these medical conditions can include patients on long-term steroids, patients with coagulopathies or with long-term anticoagulation use, patients with chronic adrenal insufficiency, um, and then kind of a special note on patients with anemia or hemoglobinopathies. Transfusion rates are overall really low with medication abortion. 0.1% or less is the reported rate for medication abortion, but aspiration lowers that even further, about tenfold to 0.01%. So patients in this category with anemia, though not well studied, may benefit from aspiration or closer monitoring. Finally, kind of the soft marker here, but also really important with a procedure that is going to last a longer amount of time, is that patients should be willing to follow up completely and have good contact information, understands that medication abortion may take time for completion, um, and they should be able to follow instructions to ensure success long term. Um, so Faye, I think that kind of brings us a bit more towards counseling and talking to patients about medication abortion. So say we have someone who we think is a reasonable candidate. What should we do from there? I think this is one of the most important parts of medication abortion is to tell your patients what to expect, what is normal, and what is abnormal. So first of all, 
um, patients should be counseled about their bleeding and cramping. They should know that their bleeding will be heavier than their periods. However, bleeding heavier than two pads an hour for two hours should prompt them to talk to their clinician either by telephone or to go into the emergency room because that may not be normal. We should also tell our patients that unfortunately medication abortions are not 100% effective and they may need an additional intervention in the event of excess bleeding or possible failure. This overall is very rare, less than 1% of the time. And again, as you discussed before, um, complications like transfusion rates are less than 0.1%. I also talked to patients about the rate of ongoing pregnancy. While this rate is overall very low, this rate does increase at later gestational ages. So the risk of an ongoing pregnancy after a medication abortion at days 64 to 70 days gestation is about 3%. Teratogenicity is associated with the use of both mifepristone and misoprostol, and we're going to talk about these medications later as well. So patients should also be counseled about this in the event of medication failure or if the patient attempts to use some type of high-dose progestin for unsanctioned abortion reversal. And I think this is the part where we should discuss that there is no regimen that has been demonstrated to reverse abortion after administration of medication, and this has been shown in small studies to increase the risk of complications. So I think, you know, going back to counseling, definitely talking to the patient and making sure that this is 100% what they want. Side effects of misoprostol also include things like GI upset, it can cause hot flashes, fevers, or chills, um, and mifepristone is generally well tolerated with very few side effects. The risk of infection is also overall very low, and there is no indication for antibiotic prophylaxis. All right, Nick, so I kind of like let the cat out of the bag a little bit because I think the next question I was going to ask you is what medications are going to be used for medical abortions? Can you talk about those a little bit? Yeah, we'll just spend a little more time detailing, but you got them. So mifepristone and mesoprostol are the most commonly used medications, and that is the most successful and preferred combination of medications. As a review, mifepristone is a selective progesterone receptor modulator. It binds progesterone receptors with a greater affinity than biologic progesterone, but it doesn't activate the perceptor, so it de facto acts as an antiprogestin. The provision of mifepristone in the United States is dependent on something called a REMS, or a Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy that's facilitated by the FDA. Um, this essentially means that if you want to be a prescriber of mifepristone, you need to sign up with the FDA to have your prescribing monitored and ongoing, and your patients at the prescription of mifepristone have to sign an official document understanding basically from the United States FDA risks of the medication. ACOG and other professional organizations oppose the ongoing use of the REMS program as clinical data suggests that mifepristone is a very safe medication to use. Um, and it Again, the REMS program has not been demonstrated actually when studied to make care for abortion safer um, and does create a barrier to the most effective means of medication abortion for patients. Mesoprostol is a prostaglandin E1 analog that we're familiar with because we use it for cervical ripening and we've talked about cervical ripening in the past. Again, it's acting in a very similar fashion here. It causes cervical softening and uterine contractions. 
When talking about what we actually use, the FDA-approved combination is to administer mifepristone 200 milligrams orally, followed 24 to 48 hours later by 800 micrograms of buccal mesoprostol. The World Health Organization suggests the same regimen, but that mesoprostol could be administered vaginally, buccally, or sublingually at the same dose and interval. Success rates here are really high for this combination, ranging from 93 to 98% with lower success rates seen at more advanced gestational ages. The risk of ongoing pregnancy, as you talked about, Faye, in the higher range of gestational age was small at about 3.1%. If you don't have access to mifepristone, mesoprostol alone is an acceptable alternative. In this case, you'd use 800 micrograms either vaginally, sublingually, or buccally, and you can use it up to every three hours, and per the FDA, for up to three doses may be used. The WHO actually doesn't ascribe a upper limit on the number of doses of mesoprostol that can be used, um, but it should be noted that mifi-meso in combination is a much, much more effective method, and that is definitely the preference to be used if it's available. Faye, we talked a little bit earlier about the importance of being able to talk with our patients after medication abortion to ensure success. So what clinical follow-up is actually needed after performing a medication abortion? Great question. So we definitely want to follow up with our patients, and you can either follow up clinically or via telemedicine, which I think is becoming more and more common in this day and age mm -hmm, of coronavirus. For sure. Essentially, what we want to do is to be able to determine if pregnancy expulsion has occurred. And clinicians are able to do this successfully with 96 to 99% accuracy based on symptoms alone. Wow. So the use of pregnancy tests can also be a helpful adjunct to confirm expulsion, but they are definitely not necessary. We can also use ultrasound, but again, this may predispose patients to additional unnecessary procedures, and the measurement of the endometrial thickness does not predict need for subsequent aspiration um, or complications. However, if abortion is suspected to be incomplete, the patient can be counseled about aspiration versus a repeat dose of mesoprostol or expectant management. And surprisingly, studies have shown that even with a gestational sac um, that is retained at two weeks after initial medication use, expulsion will usually occur spontaneously in the coming weeks. Ongoing symptoms such as irregular bleeding can persist in this case, so many patients may opt for intervention because they don't necessarily want to continue to have bleeding or cramping that continues to go on for weeks and weeks. I think the last thing we wanted to cover, Nick, is to talk about contraception. So a lot of our patients who come to us wanting a, an abortion, again, don't want to get pregnant right away. So what can we counsel them about using um, birth control either with um, their medication abortion or potentially afterwards? Yeah, and I think the fortunate thing here is that most contraceptive methods are actually safe to use almost immediately or at least soon after abortion. Certainly, if you're thinking about placing an IUD, you should wait until you've confirmed complete abortion. And so usually placing it a week after medication administration is a reasonable strategy. Kind of the one caveat to this are progestin-based contraceptives. We talked earlier about the fact that mifepristone has that sort of anti-progestin effect. And so the thought process is, is that in using a progestin, you might displace that mifepristone or decrease its efficacy somehow if you add a different progesterone in there that's going to counteract it. Um, a study has shown that with Depo-Provera use on the same day as mifepristone, 
use for medication abortion, there actually is a greater risk of ongoing pregnancy um, in that case. I mean, that so, totally makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, pharmacologically, it makes sense. So in this case, it's not an absolute contraindication, though if you are using Depo on the same day as Mifepristone, patients should be counseled about that risk. For some reason, this risk actually hasn't been seen with an etonogestrel or nexplanon implant. Um, so again, that same counseling risk warning might be applied from a theoretical perspective, but at least clinically it doesn't seem to have borne out. Um, other methods of hormonal contraception seem to be safe to start very soon with medication abortion and really should be started soon after because ovulation can occur quite quickly after, after a successful medication abortion. All right, Faye, I think that does it for this episode. Let's sum up quickly. Sure. So we first started off by saying that abortion itself is quite common in the United States. And in 2017, about 60% of abortions occurred prior to 10 weeks. Many women may choose medication abortions simply because they can be done safely, effectively, and discreetly at patients' prefer preferred time. Eligibility for medication abortion really is part of your counseling. At early gestation, patients should be counseled that the primary options are uterine aspiration and medication abortion. Most patients at less than 70 days gestation are eligible for medication abortion, and these may benefit some patients, particularly patients with uterine anomalies or with scarring of the introitus due to infibulation. Um, multiple gestation is similarly not a contraindication. At the very least, gestational age should be confirmed generally at least by LMP, though in the United States, sonography is generally indicated, and RH status verified. Medication abortion may not be totally appropriate for patients with suspected or confirmed ectopic, patients with an IUD in situ, or patients with certain chronic medical conditions, such as long-term steroid use, coagulopathy or anticoagulation use, adrenal insufficiency, or anemia or hemoglobinopathies. Finally, patients need to be willing to follow up completely and have good contact information, understanding that medication abortion may take some time for completion and be able to understand instructions. One of the most important parts of medication abortion is counseling and making sure that your patients understand the expectations for bleeding and cramping and to know when to contact their healthcare provider if their bleeding is beyond what is normal. We all should also counsel patients about the rate of ongoing pregnancy, which is quite low. However, the risk of failure can increase with increasing gestational age. We also should talk to patients about the side effects of the medications that we use, including mesoprostol and mifepristone, as well as the risk of transfusion, complication, and need for possible procedure after medication abortion. The two primary medications used for medication abortion are the combination of mifepristone, the selective progesterone receptor modulator, and mesoprostol, the prostaglandin E1 analog. This combination of 200 milligrams mifepristone followed 24 to 48 hours later by 800 micrograms of buccal mesoprostol has a success rate ranging from 93 to 98%, with the rate of ongoing pregnancy in the 64 to 70 day gestational age range, small at 3.1%. Meso alone can be used, however, is not preferred as MIFI-MISO combination is much more effective. Finally, contraception is encouraged after medication abortion, and most 
methods are safe to start immediately or soon after. The one caveat to this rule are progestin-based contraceptions such as Depo-Provera. Depo has been shown that with concomitant use on the day of mifepristone administration, a slightly increased risk of ongoing pregnancy, and so patients should be counseled about this. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our episode on first-try medication abortions. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed today's episode and my dog's running around in the background, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. And if you want, you can go on to Patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Give us some love. We'll give you a shout out or some swag. And if you have questions for us, suggestions for the show, or just want to say hi, send us an email, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.